Um, I really enjoyed your talk. It was great. Is this part of the podcast? Are we recording? Well, I think I don't know if we're recording. Are we recording? We're always recording. No, we've been recording the whole time. Um. For ten seconds. <laughs> <laughs> we're really in the podcast now, right? Yeah. 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 This is Justin. Hi, Justin Searles. We're joined by Justin Searles. Hello. Uh, you mean Sam Fippen? <laughs> <laughs> it's very strange to kind of have concluded this journey that I've been on for six and a half years speaking at Ruby conferences to, you know, be introduced as a keynote speaker at RailsConf and then, like, not have to have that name explained. <laughs> well, here's his background and here's what, you know. So it was, it was really, really, I think, just um, an important special moment for me today to get to share this particular story with such a big audience uh, of other developers because, you know, if I've had one message, whether it's through talking about feelings or talking about testing, uh, you know, over the years, it's really just that I think that uh, it's a real shame that programmers tend to act like they know things that they don't. And it makes this whole industry such a scary place to be if you're really, you know, self-conscious and aware of the fact that you don't know what you're doing. Uh, for other people to kind of, you know, make out like they do. So this talk was kind of my love letter to just sort of the anxieties that I think a lot of us live live with and carry. Yeah. yeah. I'm guilty of the pretending I know things I don't. Like somebody will ask a question, and particularly in asynchronous communication, like somebody asks a question in Slack, and I just happen to be good enough to piece together the words to put into Google. And then I read the answer and I write the answer out. But I don't say, like, I didn't know this answer. Here's what I Googled to find it. Because yeah. that also seems kind of like, let me Google this for you kind of thing. So I just say, like, I know this answer. And sometimes people get the impression that I know a lot of things. It's like, no, I just, I, maybe I'm a little bit better at Googling. <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> or I'm experienced enough to know what to Google and what not to Google. I mean, that is, like, an underrated skill, though. Because you do oftentimes, to find the right answer, you have to put, you know, knowing the words put into the search bar, it's not always <laughs> obvious. I like sometimes, though, sometimes I have those problems and, like, I'll be working with somebody and they're like, well, did you try putting the exact error message into Google that you right. were getting? It's like, no, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, and I think that there is a certain, you know, you want to be helpful and provide a concrete, clear answer that is comprehensible and straightforward. And to any extent that you you know, open up the sausage factory of all your thought processes or how you got to that conclusion or your own doubts. Uh, you run the risk of confusing people or coming across as mealy-mouthed or just wasting their time. And so there's especially like, you know, like imagine you're in a pull request review or something. If you go on at length and length, it, I can understand the, the value of brevity and terseness, but I think our industry leans so hard in that direction that very often we run the risk of coming across as cold and callous, know-it-all assholes. Right. Uh, and so guarding against that is something that I think we can all probably stand to practice. I do like, like when I submit a pull request, particularly when it's like, if I'm pretty certain in the approach I took, but if I'm, if I have any sort of uncertainty in the approach I took, I like list what my uncertainty about that mm -hmm. is and like the three other things I considered mm -hmm. and why I thought like either it was a toss up and this was just the easiest for me to do or like I thought this was slightly better but maybe you disagree let me know if you do that kind of thing and you put that mm -hmm. in the commit message yeah I put it all right in the pull request or the commit message yeah. and that tends to like lead to some pretty good discussion yeah. and sometimes it's actually just like yeah okay that seems reasonable whereas if I just if I just like confidently submit the thing it's like well did you try this did you try that and like 
yeah, it's a more bit more of an adversarial conversation from the start than like if I just let people know that no, I'm not a hundred percent sure about what I've done here. Well, and it is really nice too. Sometimes, like I remember it was a month ago. I was working on something around joins in Diesel. I don't remember what it was, but I was looking at some code, and I'm just like, this is weird and dumb. Why is it this way? It could be this other way, and that would be so much simpler. And so I blamed it, and the commit message was, so I considered doing it this other way, yeah. and the re- and I tried it for a little bit, but that ended up not working out because of X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, oh, cool, that just saved me an hour. <laughs> And as GitHub has gotten to, uh, its search functionality, you know, is pretty bare bones when we probably all started using it. As the search has gotten better, you're you're not feeding Google, you're feeding GitHub in the ability for people who might have a question about a particular repository or design decision. Those in progress thoughts that you that you share uh, in your commit messages and in your pull requests can kind of feed that. So to prevent people from opening up, you know, redundant issues or unnecessary things because those will bubble up. But there's also times, you know, to give the counterpoint to all this is like, there are times where I just know something. Like I say, I jokingly say like, no one knows how to program, but like, you know, you can develop true expertise in this field and coming across well and being helpful to people can become more and more challenging as you lose sight of the beginner's mindset. Um, You know, one area where I have a almost exclusive level of expertise is test doubles. You know, like I've written four or five mocking libraries in different languages. You know, our company's named it almost half jokingly because it's sort of this evergreen topic. Uh, and there's only really half a dozen people that I know that I can really have like a peer like discussion about the merits with because there's just so many strange little details and historical notes and jargon and stuff. Uh, and so that's where I personally really run the risk of of turning people off because it's difficult for me to break up those concepts in a way that a neophyte would be able to relate to. Yeah. My area of expertise is don't use bubble sort. (laughs) (laughs) The test double thing just reminded me like you did a video screen screencast series maybe Mm. a while ago about like mockest versus classical is that what it is or yeah well there's not good terminology uh so so just to break it down you know you could say uh classical test driven development is what the uh extreme programming fellows did and the uh the the quote-unquote three c's project at chrysler in the late 90s early 2000s and sort of laid the groundwork for a lot of classical tdd uh you know there's people like ron jeffries uh ward cunningham uh kent beck was in the room chet Hendricks. they were all practicing those skills. And, and and if you've ever done the bowling game Kata or learned TDD, you probably learned that kind of test-driven development. But around the same time, the London Extreme Programming Group was coming along and they had this outside in, you know, what Martin Fowler would call a mockist style of test-driven development, uh, which I really hate that, that word. Uh, the word mock is just really negative framing and it has specific <laughs> meetings and yada, yada. Um, so nowadays I just call what I do outside in or discovery testing. Right. Yeah. yeah. When those came out, I was like, I have a pretty firm understanding of this. And I watched that and I was like, oh, he has a much more firm understanding <laughs> of this. <than> <laughs> well, it is a four and a half hour long screencast. So. <laughs> and I've always, because I think a lot of people have gone through phases of not using mocks, mocking literally everything all of the time, kind of going through the two extremes. Mm. On the using a lot of mocks extreme, I do find that it does a great job of helping me explicitly draw out my interfaces a lot earlier than I would otherwise. Mm. And as I've, I'm, I'm right now in a little bit of like fewer mocks, but still some mocks kind of phase. And I have been struggling to kind of find how to maintain that feedback on the interface design as early as it came when I was testing every object in complete isolation. Do you have any thoughts on how to mock less but still get that feedback? 
Well, uh, I'm going to go ahead and assume that everyone other than Sean who's listening to this did watch the talk first. Uh, so I'm going <laughs> to work from that assumption just for the purpose of this answer. So it might not make a ton of sense to you. But in the way that I've come to organize my code, anything whose job it is... So basically follow an edict that says do or delegate, never both. And any unit of code can either do the job that it says on the tin or pass it off to other units that'll be subordinate to it to do that work for it. I don't really believe in balance as a human. I mean, if anyone who follows my personal life on Twitter <laughs> or how I blog, I am all about chasing the ex- eating habits. Yeah. Eating habits, uh, <laughs> uh, my walking desk, uh, you know, how I run every day. I'm a weird guy. Uh, and so that divide to say really clearly and just draw a line in the sand, you are either a delegator who just carves work up, uh, and if you have any logic, it's like an if condition or maybe a loop, or you're a, a doer. You actually do the work, and I try to make you a pure function. That draws a line in the sand that says those delegators, of course, 100% of the stuff in their unit test should be mocked out because the purpose of the unit test is to break up the work. Right. And for those doers, those pure functions, a testable does not belong there because it should just be able to pass in values and get values out the other end. Sure. Same goes for integration tests. You know, the purpose of an integration test is wholly different. It's it, when everything's glued together, does the thing work? And any fakeness that you introduce there just weakens our, the veracity of the test, our trust that it's actually doing its job. And so test doubles don't belong there either. And so I'm just, I can go off and describe 10 different types of tests to you. Sure. Uh, and <laughs> only one f- would test doubles actually be appropriate. Right, so right. That's the sort of silly thing about this is that unless you have a very, very, I think, discreet mindset around types of tests, it can be just confusing. And that's why, you know, I didn't want to have a whole discussion about test doubles. I probably shouldn't have brought it up. But like, <laughs> when you look at like a, a, a Rails application, the test suites in there are likely to have like, I'm a model test. I'm talking to the database. I just randomly poked a hole in this other object over here with the test double because I don't know, it was causing pain. And now I don't. And that's 99.9% of how actual like mock objects are used in practice. They don't give the design feedback. They just make the test worse. Uh, and so I feel like I spend most of my time telling people, no, don't do that. Uh, which is less fun than it sounds. Right. I I definitely like I flip back and forth between like I'm using a lot of like Sean, like I'm using a lot of test doubles here or I am not. And the reason why I struggle with flipping back and forth is what you just captured is like I I have things that are both doing and delegating. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if I use a double there, I feel like, oh, well, I'm cheating because that's like I, I didn't calculate that value off a real object. I just like mocked it and that's not like that's not good but then it helps me in the design feedback of that delegating part because i don't actually care about the actual value i really would challenge you to say that like you're you that's got to be a mixed level of abstraction yeah if you're if yeah. you're carving out some of the work for some things but oh this is just a little bit of math i will also do this little bit of math yep that's what i think the people who do outside and test driven development often talk about it as a design feedback yep. mechanism it's like as soon as that test hurts to write that means that like you've got mixed levels of abstraction. Right. You need to just do one or the other thing. Right. The other thing, I was talking to somebody about your talk already, and I was like, I really liked the way that you broke up the feature that we were kind of walking through, right? And like basically wrapped everything was one of the things, mm-hmm. one of the points of the talk. And I was like, I really like doing that, but I feel like when I do that, I'm straying from what people expect to find like in a controller, right? They expect me to call like user dot find or user dot all and have that be an active record user object and then i balance like to me it's okay like because i'm like i understand what's happening here but then i wonder like 
well, to my, am I doing my clients a disservice by like introducing this other thing that's different from what they're going to see in most Rails apps? You asked the question, like, what do you <laughs> expect to find when you open a Rails controller? The I answer is, nest. You, yes, you expect <laughs> to find a rat's nest. So yes. uh, I don't know that that's like necessarily the bar we want right. to hold ourselves to. <laughs> that was my entire talk as well. So yeah, I, I agree with you. <laughs> but at the same time, again, I want to bring the counterpoint, right? Like for a straightforward CRUD application that doesn't have a lot of very fancy logic, just painting by numbers and putting your stuff in the right Rails bucket can get you from zero to 60 very quickly. Yep. So you just as the team have to make the determination whether or not you're going the vanilla Rails route or if you're going to start breaking out stuff. And if you break out stuff, like what's that watermark, the threshold where you decide, okay, we're going to break out and do all of this in custom po rows, uh, plain old objects that mm -hmm. are divorce from Rails, and it's got to be a, a conscientious decision. I do feel like the network can kind of mess up the uh, the, the separations, mm. both in when you want to mock things out and also in what is doing or delegating. Because uh, when you're making a network call, that is sort of by definition delegating at least some amount of work to whatever you're calling out to. And mm -hmm. oftentimes, depending on the API, you'll want to mock out that API that you're integrating with in your integration tests even because it's just not an API that you can act. For example, Stripe is an API that you more or less just can't directly test against, mm -hmm. at least in your automated tests. Where it's like if you're integrating with S3, that's one where I usually like to, in most of my tests, hit the actual API and then just use uh, VCR to speed it up but have the cassettes you know, checked into git ignore and expire frequently that sort of thing mm -hmm. it's one of those interesting ones to me where it's a thing that you often want to mock out and it kind of causes you to break a lot of the rules that you'd otherwise have about when to mock or stub something i'm really glad that you raised that because it's one of the things i had to cut from the talk which is uh i mentioned wrappers at the end as, as wrapping third-party open source code but that was already the longest section of the talk and what i really wanted to add to it was to say that third-party libraries even if we're counting standard lib the vast majority of our asynchronous stuff and our IO is going to be invoked via that stuff as opposed right. to some, not like I'm going to like socket.new inside my application typically. Right. And so those wrappers actually also give us a, a way to demarcate ourselves from side effects where, you know, in fact, another observation of these trees that I keep drawing is that they sort of map, you can visualize one, imagine a, close your eyes, imagine a tree uh, of, of nodes in the system. The stuff on the left is usually loading stuff, getting information from different systems and databases. The stuff in the middle is like mostly transformations and beating that data into submission. And the stuff in the right is where all the side effects and results go. Right. You know, you sending signals to other systems. And those little wrapper objects in my unit tests, you know, I just fake out the wrapper because I fake out all of the subordinate stuff. Right. And then I have like a nice little crystallized place to, you know, if I'm just calling Stripe and I trust that Stripe works, maybe I have no tests. But if the Stripe API or the Facebook API starts breaking in a certain particular way uh, and I want to guard against that, then maybe I start a brand new test suite of just against that. Right. So I have like a green and red light tells me whether or not my assumptions about that third party API are currently safe. And if I do that and I follow these rules carefully, then that's what gives me the freedom in my in my totally separate integration test to perhaps, you know, use a web mock or VCR kind of right. approach to here's a fixture of a of a response from Stripe so that I don't have to go and call the universe or that, so that I can make sure that the overall app works even when I'm on an airplane. That kind right, of thing. right. Testing on airplanes <laughs> is a thing that's very important to a very small group of people. I but was boy, say, it's helpful. Yeah. <laughs> 
that is a sign of privilege that like you know the vast majority of my programming happens on airplanes yeah <laughs> so it is very important that you be able to run your test without a internet connection how many people have filled out your uh, the Searles Briggs oh, test? Oh, yeah. So the Searles Briggs uh, 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 type indicator yeah. of programmer personalities is a raging success. So I think we're at like 350 responses to the online edition. I've handed out about 100 uh, paper form ones. Uh, we actually already at, uh, in our Slack at Test Double, we already have people like crunching numbers and looking at the distributions of uh, <laughs> different types of programmers. And I was actually worried that like 100% of people would just get salt because I was so biased in writing right. the questions. Uh, but actually, I have got some very unpopular opinions, it turns out. Uh, and some of the questions have very normal distributions. Uh, I'm trying to think of... The we are not doomed question was interesting. We I had, answered three. On yeah, that one, yeah, totally yeah, well. yeah, we got some <laughs> middle of the road ones. Uh, a lot more people were optimistic, though, than pessimistic, which oh. surprised me. But not when I consider the fact that RailsConf attendees, like a ton of first timers are here. So a right. bunch of, you know, young, naive. <laughs> See, uh, I, I, the we are not doomed, I agreed with. It was the software is, is, gen- is generally getting better. I'm just like. Yeah, I was more like software is probably not generally getting better, but we're probably all we're we're doomed, but maybe not because of software. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't know, yeah. I feel like three was really three. Yeah. I was like, I'm gonna cop out on this one and go three. I was an F A L T, a fault, fault. I was a Fanta. <laughs> I felt so badly because somebody tweeted out that they got fail <laughs> F-A-L-E and it never even occurred to me I thought I'd spelled them all out and I felt really badly so I reached out to the person and said you know all programmers are beautiful you need to rethink your positions on these items so you can change no, one of these letters no no it's all good you know and you could totally you could look at somebody like a fine uh, would probably be very well suited for startup life where you're pivoting all the time and you need to be able to experience experiment. Uh, whereas, you know, this actually gives me a model for understanding why it is I'm so bad at startup work or M- building an MVP. Like I'm much better suited for people who have really big, complex, gnarly legacy rescues because I love that surgical uh, approach to solving problems. Mm. So how much of, I'm curious how much of developing this thing was something that like you wanted to use as a vehicle for the talk versus something that you think actually could be useful or is it both developing a talk especially when you spend a couple hundred hours on it like i do it's a symbiotic thing after a while so in this particular case i started off knowing everything i wanted to say i've got a gigantic mind map that's like you know it would probably take me 50 feet by 30 feet on a plot printer to print out like the entire outline for the talk and i just needed a way i needed a, a rhetorical hook to tie it all together somehow and so it was in thinking of the Myers-Briggs test as sort of like a personality inventory was a way to try to tell a story of two threads. One, yeah, I did want to share the way that I program with everyone. As this is my particular style. Here you go make up your own. And so I wanted a, a through line that would force me to actually show you bit by bit. How, and you can see over the course of the talk how my process gets more and more complex and how like the, it's actually second order aspects of that tree shape that enable interesting other observations, like the fact that you can easily blow away and replace entire components, uh, which you couldn't do if you were in like a normal kind of object graph. So I did want to tell that story, but I also really uh, clearly wanted to tell people, this is something that you own. You don't get to just listen to this and then follow yet another thought leader's prescribed way of doing stuff. 
and so instead, the audience participation angle of having this test and having this personality inventory for you to think about, my hope is that most people don't get salt. And then they say, well, how will I differ from Justin then in how I design my own way? And maybe they'll share that. I awesome. agree. It was, it was good. <laughs> I also just think like, as I was talking to people who were like new to the conference and stuff, they were like, what are you looking forward to? And I was like, oh, Justin's keynote. It's going to be great. So I think that you've done a really good job at like, like it's obvious that you care and care a great deal in like not wasting anybody's time yeah. and like making sure you put your best foot forward. And like, as I was developing my own talks and I've only done a couple now, but like, that's the number one thing I try and care about is like, am I wasting anybody's time? Yep. Like, and I'm so afraid, like even the talk I gave, I was like, I'm so afraid that this is so obvious. And like, just as I was walking over here to record this podcast, somebody was like, hey, I really liked your talk. I was like, great, thank you very much. And then they were like, it sounded so obvious, but sometimes the really obvious thing just needs to be said. And it's hard to know, like, am I being just obvious here? There's a massive difference. (laughs) And I think most developers will resonate with this idea. There's a massive difference between obvious and obvious in hindsight. Um, Uh, Obvious in hindsight is stuff that's like a simple solution to a problem that we all share and are struggling to articulate. And I I trust it was that kind of obvious where after the fact, sure, it sounds like pretty straightforward advice, (laughs) but for some reason we keep failing at it. And you know what? Even if it is obvious, if teams around the world keep failing at the thing, then maybe it needs to be said anyway. Right. That's kind of the opinion. I I was like, this seems like it is hindsight because like when you're on the other side of it, you're like, of course, of course that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Just from a speaker and attendee point of view, I don't know how intentional this was, but I'm assuming it was very intentional. I, you were, you ended like exactly on time, and I respect, like, I, I respect how hard that is to do. Oh my goodness, this is funny. So last week I gave this talk. The only other time I'll probably give it a deconstruct conf in Seattle, Washington, by a young man named Gary Bernhardt, uh, and he invited all these speakers, and so no pressure because Gary is only one of the most, uh, you know, practiced speakers on uh, whatever you would call this circuit. And I had a 25-minute slot, and I told him I was going to go a few minutes over, and I landed around 29 minutes. Uh, And I felt badly for that. But in fairness to me, which is the only kind of fairness (laughs) I care about, in fairness to me, the screen was flickering, and I lost like two minutes of runtime. And so his AV problems are his fault. Uh, However, what's so interesting, and this confirms my business partner Todd's theory that I'm just full of hot air, uh, and will fill whatever container I am given. I had 45 minutes this time for this talk, and I only added like five slides. And somehow, I do 597 slides in 29 minutes last week, and I, the exact same slides for the most part managed to take me exactly 45 minutes today. So it's really difficult for me to slow down without just rambling and getting into stupid storytelling time and just right. derail things. But I really did my best today in the interest of both not wasting people's time, of course, and try to bring some energy to the table. These are big topics that take a lot of time to process. And by speaking a little slower than I normally do, I hope that it may be sunk in a little bit more with folks. Yeah. Sweet. So, <laughs> so what's new? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing is new. Literally, our entire field was just rediscovering. Yeah, actually, there's nothing new under the sun. That is actually a conversation I actually had with somebody, I think, here. Basically, they had only ever worked for one company, and they were looking for another job. And because I was like, oh, interesting. And they're like, one of the things I want to know is, like, how much of the problems that I'm solving are my company's problems versus how much are just common problems. And I was like... Oh, they're all common problems. I was like, your company has one or two probably that are kind of unique to you and may, and each of them has like a separate little flavor. 
but like as i do more and more development it's like they're all we're, we're all just kind of like it was your talk right where you were like we're all just trying to put spreadsheets on the internet yeah yeah that's yeah. it <laughs> i also like being quoted during my own <laughs> interview uh and then, you know we all do struggle with a lot of the same types of problems you know Derek, I know you've been consulting for a long time like me, and, and we, as consultants, really, I think, get to see a lot of different teams, and we start to see a lot of the patterns across projects. Mm -hmm. And so we're able to be somewhat authoritative in our, you know, no, you're not a special snowflake. Everyone runs into this when they use Factory Girl mm -hmm. uh, kind of <laughs> issues. Oh, right. This, this, talk, this podcast is sponsored by the Factory Girl <laughs> gem. Uh, however, when you are feeling like there's nothing new to say... Uh, or that you've seen every problem before, you could do what I do and become a manager. <laughs> and and now I try to like you know help people through their own journey to find you know like to succeed through them more. And I'm finding that to be more fulfilling now that I'm actually putting in the time to actively mentor and put an effort advocating on behalf of our developers like Josh Greenwood and Sam Jones who are starting to speak more, Ali Ibrahim who's like organizing and be more on Rails in the Baltimore community. Uh, and I find that really fulfilling. And I don't know how long I'll be doing it, but I suspect that because this industry, especially when you're in the enterprise crud web app industry, which you know is only like 70% of the IT trillion dollar <laughs> bucket out there, I'm curious about taking what I've learned here and applying it to very, very different disciplines inside of software and technology. Uh, it'll probably be five to 10 years before I really get a chance, but that's where my head is at is thinking, you know, like, what's this look like when I apply it to a, you know, a biotech battery company or some other thing? I can't even, I want to say deep learning I, or I don't know. Neural networks. I'm so, I'm, I know so little about the world outside of the spreadsheet on apps. the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do miss, uh, from like a, a rails maintainer point of view. Being a consultant, even though some people on the on the team think that consultants are the scum of the earth, it does give you a very, very broad perspective of the problems that a lot of people are facing. To a certain extent, you only you know you only get that surface level of view. You know, working at Shopify now, there's a there's the flip side of just getting a really deep understanding of some of the big bigger problems that are faced just by the larger, much more legacy app. But I do I do definitely miss just getting to see a lot of apps and a lot of different types of problems because that, that does give you, for o writing open source libraries, such a, y you understand what a lot more people are looking for that way. Yeah, I like to think of consulting as I'm just farming for ideas of patterns and things that I can share with other people. Like, it's almost like I view it as an opportunity to, when I identify a pattern, a problem that a lot of people are walking into, I don't generally build open source necessarily, or I don't jump to that right away unless I have an immediate problem to solve. But instead, I think that it's an opportunity to make software more human, uh, to say like, hey, look, you're struggling with this. Guess what? Everyone else is mm. too. You know, it's not, you're not special. It's, this is a common thing everyone runs into. Let's all talk about it, put it on the table, give it a name, explain different ways to solve it. Uh, and that's one reason why, even though we're in year 12, I think, of RailsConf, and Rails is a pretty much, you know, well-established known quantity, there's some evergreen problems in software. Uh, I'm attracted to them. That's why I've always focused on testing and legacy rescue, because those two never are going to be solved, per yeah. se. But mining different teams for the problems of the moment that they're struggling with, I think is a good opportunity to bring us together across our little tiny pockets and ecosystems. Yeah. When I first started at ThoughtBot, I had like some insecurities around like 
these people are so much better at rails and probably development in general than I am. And like, I spent, I, I think it maybe been a few weeks and I've been working on this, you know, I got this new feature to work on and I like tried it one way and it didn't work. Tried it another way. I didn't like the way it came out. Tried it a third way. Still didn't work. So I'd spent like a day and a half and had nothing to show for it. And like, uh, I was talking to Matt Monjo Goose, who was, I was like complaining to him. I was like, look, I've just like wasted the last two days of work. And his response was, well, what'd you do? And I told him like, I tried this, I tried that. And he was like, well, you just found three ways that don't work. Like, that's the job. Sometimes you just find three ways that don't work. And I was like, oh, that kind of is the job, of course. Like, sometimes you don't know the right answer and it takes time to figure it out. And you have to recognize that, like, finding out that those three ways don't work wasn't wasted time. That, yeah. was, that was valuable. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you learn from that. I don't know. It does always just feel a lot worse, though, when you have, you know, there are certain types of ideas or solutions that you come up with. And the only real way to know if it's going to work is just to go through all the trouble of implementing it. And then you're two days later and you, nope, this was a bad idea. It does just really feel bad. Yeah. But overcoming that, I think, is to the point of like, going back to Justin's point of like, yeah, everybody does have this problem, but it, bringing the more human side to that is like, sure. yeah, that, like, that's going to happen and that's normal. And yeah. that's, yeah. you know. So one of the things that I'm interested in is what does Rails look like over the next three or four years? And when I say Rails, I really just mean the Ruby community more generally because uh, I don't spend all of my time here. I spend a lot of time in just JavaScript land or just generally, uh, you know, I go to Hacker News and I know, you know, Ruby isn't, you know, lighting up the charts anymore and hasn't been for four or five years. Uh, and yeah, I just had a conversation with Yehuda at lunch where, you know, I was asking about the state of the Ember world and he kind of, he had to use the word still a lot or it's going like as if like you know i i didn't ask it in a negative framing or right. or apply any sort of judgment to it but there is a and i i tried to kind of get at this in the talk as being you know part of what's problematic in software us not understanding it is that there's a newsworthiness aspect to software tools we're always chasing the newest one we have this novelty bias to think newer frameworks and ways of doing things are inherently better and so if your thing whether that's ember or rails or ruby isn't in the news well then it's old stuff yeah. and it must not be as good as new stuff and we know that's not true, and people listening to your podcast know that's not true, and yet we have not yet replaced that orange website with something that is, <laughs> you know, a font of, of the more eternal knowledges. Because we know at the end of the day, like, it's actually after your thing stops being in the news that you can finally shut up and be productive right? <laughs> and build valuable stuff. I think people, we were talking about this earlier today, I think people really underestimate the value of an established ecosystem. Mm. The one thing from DHH's keynote that really did resonate a lot was the, like, it doesn't really matter if you're picking the right, the best tool for the job, as long as you're picking a tool for the job and you get something done, you're going to be able to get a lot more done with the more established tool just because there's gems for everything you need. Every, like, your problem's already solved, but then that's, that's not exciting. <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, you know, one of the things that has bothered me about NPM is the extent to which, and it's exciting to see particular modules get downloaded 18 gajillion times every month. But download count doesn't tell the real story. I think the number of modules is a very interesting thing. So like mm -hmm. NPM has a massive number of modules. And like, I've written 100. So you know, at least 100 are crap. But, <laughs> but that is really interesting when you think about the size of dependencies over the years continues to go down. 
the number of dependencies per project keeps going up. And so the amount of wheels that we reinvent is theoretically lower, but now the dependencies are also small that it's like we're actually making wheels out of other wheels <laughs> <laughs> where you have to kind of curate your own collection of dozens and dozens of different dependencies. And that's what a project means. And so, like I said earlier, I'm a person of extremes and I like taking things really far. But when I see a lot of Node.js projects, which is, you know, a very anti-framework kind of bent uh, as a community, a lot of them are, are almost radically modular and, and extreme. Whereas not only does Ruby, I think Ruby shouldn't try to sell itself as we're a mature ecosystem because people think mature means old and crappy. Right. Or that there's a gem for everything because you will lose that battle, right? There's a reason why Asset Pipeline was really cool in 2011. Right. But mm -hmm. now no one would want to build their JavaScript transpilation in Ruby because there's so much stuff in NPM. So right. you're going to lose that too. But what you might be able to win is these are well thought out, batteries included, toolkits oh, yeah. that solve all sorts of common problems. And if you pull it down, you're going to get taken care of because they've thought about all the angles of the problem right. when, you, when you pull in a dependency like Faye or even uh, Factory Girl is a lot bigger and more robust than most kind of, you know, fake testing tools for Node.js. And so slicing it at the right size to be useful so as not to be overwhelming, I think, is a, a true benefit of the Ruby ecosystem. Yeah. When I did do like a little bit of Node work, like the first Node app I wrote, and it was like, okay, well, we need something, you know, gives us like some routing or whatever. And it was like, oh, Express. I was like, all right. Mm -hmm. So we got Express. And then I was like, oh, okay, well, I need it. I don't know, cross-site request forgery protection. And it was like, oh, well, you got to get this thing. I was like, all right. Or you got to pick between these things. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. all right, well, which one of these do I need? And it does give you like decision fatigue. You're like, oh, I got to make every one of these decisions. And it's so different. And I know that like some people really love that. Because they can pick and choose, or they can choose not to ignore an total total part of like they don't. They're an API. They don't need cross site request for Yeah, or whatever. I kind of hate the the uh, particularly on security. Like uh, that is a, because you need to know that you need to look for a thing that protects you from CSRF, which a lot of developers won't. Right, but it's just a different perspective on it, and I I think that that is a fair way to compare those two communities in particular, and it's you may value one over the other. And there's going to be plenty of people who value each one. And it's not like saying, well, we're mature and therefore you are immature. Right? <laughs> yeah, and I, <laughs> yeah. And that's one reason that I think that there are just an infinite number of interesting spectrums as opposed to treating it like dichotomies, like mature or not mature, but right. like spectrums of, I use the phrase batteries included, mm -hmm. like what size of battery comes with the thing, right? Like, whereas like with Node, maybe it's like you get one of those little watch batteries that comes with that little tiny <laughs> itty, itty bitty CSRF module that you're describing. And maybe with Ruby, it's the standard two double A's. And, and that's <laughs> something that a lot of us are comfortable with. And then maybe you go to like, you know, Java Scala and it's like, you know, four D cells to, to, <laughs> to set up your, you know, Jersey Spring JSON API. And, and every company, and every team and every developer is going to have a different disposition for what they're comfortable with. But we don't have a great language for that. We're not talking about that very often as a way to organize ourselves as programmers. And so I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. You know, DHH is right. Most people just land where they land because somebody told them, hey, go use this. And it worked well enough, so they used it. And then they developed this tribalistic sports yeah. team, hoorah-rah, mm -hmm. bias towards that particular technology stack. Because they don't want to be wrong. They don't right. want to have taken the wrong bet, right? Or yeah. placed the wrong bet. Well, and there's valid reason to, to have that tribalism, though, right? I mean, 
not that it's a good thing, but it is definitely motivated by if the more you're not wrong, the more secure your job is. The more the more developers using the same stack as you, and the more jobs there are uh, for that stack, the better off you well, are. Well, I'm not saying it's not rational. I'm right. saying that if you give in and say programming is about faith, right. and picking out the best thing is mostly just following the herd. It's a, it can be a cop-out because it's a conversation enter. Well, I use Rails because it was handed unto me in 2005 when I was you know, first learning modern web application development. And instead, what I'd really like to see is more and more discussions about maybe we're not going to get to the, you know, DHH's uh, whipping boy in that talk was like the double-blind study that actually proves without a doubt, like in a a clean room environment, that this framework is better than that framework. It's true we're never going to get there, but I think we're still really immature at how we compare different Mm -hmm. technology approaches because it's not just about the technology. It's about how humans interact with it, and it's what, like, the flow of development feels like. Uh, and the cadence of delivery and operations right. and all that and, other well, stuff. You can do studies on teams doing projects of similar size, and you can try and determine defect rates and and, uh, and rate of shipping and that sort of thing. Like there 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 are ways that you can you know you can do studies. Right, and and like the point that like oh we've been doing this for thirty years and we haven't found a solution yet, therefore a solution must not be findable. Is kind of like thirty. That's actually not a long time for an industry to exist. <laughs> well, and, and like, you know, programming <laughs> languages have not changed at all in thirty years. <laughs> all roads lead to JavaScript. Uh, they're all yep. con- kind of converging in a strange way. And I think you're both right. But I think that DHH's point is we don't have time to generate the hard data, even right. if there is yes. a way to measure everything. You know, it's not like you're going to fund that study, right. uh, and you're not going to wait to like let me let me resolve this before I build my web app that I need. Right. So. Right. And so that's why I think that qualitative descriptions, which is what I specialize in, is touchy feely interpretations of software. Why I think they can be useful is because somebody could write a blog post or give a 45-minute talk and then, like, spark a discussion that maybe you've only ever programmed Ruby, but, like, when you hear, you know, about a spectrum and, and, you know, Node falls over here and Elm falls over here and Elixir's community is like this and Ruby's community is like this and Ember's community is like this, it can contextualize that decision that you've made. And if you made one that doesn't suit where you land on that spectrum, you might realize, like, maybe I'm on the wrong bus. Mm-hmm. In, without necessarily needing to read through a white paper of, of facts and figures to right. tell you that. So where do you, uh, what bus are you on? <laughs> um, I think that for the vast majority, so here's, I'll tell you a quick story. So as a consultant, we are brought in every now and then by a, an entrepreneur or a small business. You know, sometimes a startup is, you know, got the uh, business pretty much figured out, but they're, they're trying to, you know, build out their first or second iteration of, of their technical product. And Testable, my company, we, we mostly specialize on like big existing projects, teams that are already running for a while and they, they need some extra help. But we do talk to startups as well. And one thing that's really kind of concerned me over the last couple of years is that because Node and React is just like the default and it's the most popular thing. And it's what, you know, especially newer programmers who are active in the startup community just sort of, you know, talk about the most. A lot of founders uh, at companies or non-technical people are primed with the thinking that like, uh, you know, a a Node app of just a whole bunch of little tiny modules that are custom curated, uh, you know, with a a React front end, a Preact back end, microservices all over the place. like, that is just the default correct way to write software. And I've had several like day long inception meetings with founders where I'm like, you really don't need microservices. I had one come (laughs) to me with like, you know, a spreadsheet of hundreds of microservices that they designed on day one. I was like, I don't have to explain to you why that's probably not what you need on day one of of your application. But culturally, that's kind of where we're at right now. And 
you ask me what bus I'm on, I, I'm on whatever bus needs the most help. And so, because that's my job, I'm always fixing. And so I want to I wanna help the JavaScript community in general, but like the Node.js community in specific to help smaller teams, especially, but actually, you know, all size teams deal with the, the just like gigantic complexity that you that you get from all this wheel reinvention, because there's a lot that we've learned in the Ruby and Rails community about convention over configuration, about good framework design that we have to offer that. And so in terms of like low hanging fruit, I have a lot more to help them than I do to the average Rails developer who's already seen the light. It's interesting that you like, <laughs> I always assumed that all developers hated legacy projects. Right. And you're like, no, I embrace them. And it's, it's well, I wouldn't say I embrace them. Uh, <laughs> you know, I discontent is basically my brand. So I wouldn't say I love, I wouldn't but I like you love welcome them. the challenge. What I learned early on, I don't like speaking. I am not an extrovert. I am a pretty introverted person, but I learned long enough ago that good things happen when I push myself out of my comfort zone mm. and become really comfortable with what makes me uncomfortable. Big gnarly code, yeah, it terrifies me. But if I put my mind to it and I try really hard, uh, I'll come out the other end and I'll be able to make things better and I'll learn a lot more from that big legacy mess than I'll learn from building the 50th little simple CRUD app from days one to 10, mm -hmm. which are all the same across every single one of them. Right. Same reason I give talks. You know, like I'm really afraid that I won't be able to do a good job on this or find a good story to tell. Mm -hmm. And so then I'll spend 200 hours on it and realize I'll learn a ton about myself in the process. So that's, I think, where I really am. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think in terms of where, where you're headed or where your efforts would be best spent right now. I mean, I maintain Rails because it, it's where I think I am able to benefit the most people mm. per hour of time spent. And yeah, I, I do a lot of stuff in the Rust community, but I'll be doing that until I feel like I don't have anything meaningful to do there. So I got into consulting like four years ago, mostly because I wanted to see more problems mm. and I thought it was interesting and I really liked writing Rails. So I was like, cool, Rails consultancy checks both boxes. Let's do this. And now I feel like I've seen a lot of the problems to know that a lot of them are the same problem over and over again. And I'm not sure that Rails is the long term. Like I, I, I do feel like there is going to be something that will enable us to write better software. And oh, maybe, yeah. it, maybe it already exists. And I was, I was saying earlier, somebody, we were talking about this, like, I also really like Elixir, right? And I've spent some time doing Elixir, but I don't feel like that's a radical departure from like what we already do in Rails. And I understand it's functional and all this stuff. And some people get really upset when I say it's still similar to Ruby and Rails. So I want to spend more time trying out the bus of like strong statically typed programming languages or something like that to see like... How does the solution change here? How does the process of developing the solution change? Like how, what do I need for tests when I do something like that? What goes away? What, is, what are my new concerns? Because previous to this, all the things I've tried have been Ruby or Ruby adjacent type things that have different trade-offs, but of the same class kind of, that, that same kind of solution. So that's where I'd like to try and spend some time next. That said, like ultimately I'm going to do what the work is. And I have limited time to do outside of what the work is. So trying to find the work that's slightly different is kind of the challenge for me now. Is there anything uh, you want to plug before we wrap up? Plug? Uh, well, first of all, if you don't know me or follow me on the internets already, my last name is Searles. And my wife, who is a teacher, on the first day of class every year, 
will explain that it's spelled like the word pearls, like in the ocean, except with an S instead of a P. Uh, and if you've Googled for that hard, then you find me on Twitter. That's my Twitter handle, and find me on the line there. Test Double is the name of the agency, the company that, that, that I work with, and work software consultants just like ThoughtBot is. I'm not going to come here and say we're better than ThoughtBot, but you know that is now a direct quote. It's <laughs> better than Enter, Entered into the record. In, yeah, just for the record in the transcript, <laughs> feeding Google. Uh, <laughs> love you, Chad. Uh, other than that, you know, I'll just pick out something uh, that I think is probably useful to this audience. If you're listening to a podcast, you probably are also on Twitter. You're probably also consuming a lot of different media all day. You probably, while you're programming, you command tab or alt tab a lot to other programs and you switch contexts a lot. And research shows that that context switching creates some mental residue that can last up to 20 minutes, further distracting us and preventing the real deep thought that leads to, you know, good work and good outcomes and better code and more productivity. There's a book by a, name, uh, a guy named Kale, I forgot his last name, called Deep Work. And he's a, an academic who's a really, really prolific paper writer and author who specializes in kind of consuming that research and in a digestible way, both making the case to us that like living a more distraction-free lifestyle would uh, result us in, uh, in us being, you know, Basically, there's an economic advantage to people who are able to focus for long periods of time. Uh, and two, gives you a lot of life hacks, ways to, uh, you know, shut out a lot of the other stuff so that you have, you know, four to six hours of really, really focused time every day. Uh, and I'm working through that book right now, and it's been really great. But one of the, my favorite things is that he gives a case study of three different people that he thinks are awesome, deep thinkers, deep workers. One is Nate Silver at 538. Mm -hmm. uh, forgot the other one because it's some investment banker dude bro and then the third <laughs> one blew my mind because he says this person is an amazing programmer a prolific skill who's just changed the world uh and his name is david heinemeyer hansen <laughs> who wrote this thing called ruby on rails and he goes at length talking about the the villa in spain and the, the race cars and clearly he's quite successful and so i just like it didn't really strike me as the David that I know that I've uh, met. And so I asked David the other night, like, do you know that you're like a third of this very top selling book? <laughs> and he had no idea. apparently. So I got a shout out for that book because it's Ruby on rails endorsed. <laughs> cool. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Thank you. Always right. fun. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 117. Thanks very much. And we'll see you next time.